Good morning. My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here. <clears throat> I'm not a, <clears throat> excuse me, a big um, football fan. I'm not really into the Seahawks yet, though I feel quite the peer pressure to be. <clears throat> last, <clears throat> excuse me, last week's game was uh, easily one of the best, most fun times I've ever had watching a football game. Wasn't that so fun. That was, that was just ridiculous how fun it was. And my wife says to me last night, just out of the blue, she says, Peter, what, what? I can't wait till the Super Bowl. My <laughs> wife, I hope they score a lot of baskets. <clears throat> we are uh, going to talk about prayer today. Uh, in this passage, there's a, there's a lot of angles to take. Paul is uh, using many different threads to weave together uh, this passage. But the thread that we're going to follow and pull out and study is the thread of prayer. Okay? Um, and the title is called Prayer Life because I want to uh, connect it to our life as a whole. Now... Um, I don't have a great history with prayer. I have this one, I've had sort of like one uh, very um, uh, uh, isolated and, uh, um, what's the word, uh, very extreme view of prayer, and then another one, and then another one. And then now I'm at a really good place uh, with regard to prayer. And I think this passage really uh, helps me to understand prayer in a much more helpful way uh, for me. And I think it will be helpful for you also. So what we want to do today is we want to help you rethink what prayer is, why we pray, and why it's so important that as we pray, as we live, we pray to God the Father in Jesus' name. Okay? Three stories first. Uh, my first memory of prayer is out of the Korean experience. Uh, I'm Korean. I was born there. And I immigrated here when I was eight years old. The Korean culture and the people, they're sort of an intense group. They're very emotional. They're, there's a passion about them. And they're, they're sort of a, a quick fix, kind of an urgent culture. And part of that is because they were uh, invaded and oppressed and occupied for thousands of years. And with the exception of helping Vietnam uh, during the Vietnam War, they've never invaded another country. They've always been sort of the oppressed victims. And as a result of that, they carry with them this thing. The Korean word for it is called Han. And it just means that like things just aren't flowing freely, but it's all just like packed down in there. And so the way that translated to their spirituality uh, and to Christianity and Presbyterianism, more specifically as the missionaries came to the country, is uh, the Korean people, they saw prayer as a, a legitimate way to release some of this Han. Right, And so when Koreans pray, they are screaming out loud. They're sort of in anguish, and they're pounding the ground often, and they're sort of shouting out all at once. So if you go to like a Korean-Korean prayer meeting, it's really intense. Okay, And I grew up in that environment, and they like to do it late into the night and early in the morning. And so and uh, in my personal experience, I had to layer on top of that the whole immigrant deal, 
you know, we're trying to survive, we're trying to make it in this country. So there's another layer of intensity and urgency that's laid on top of that. And so prayer was sort of this very heavy, serious thing that I just did not know how to approach. So that's my first memory of prayer. A second memory of prayer is when I was dealing with uh, uh, what what people call charismatic Christians. And uh, I was with them for about four four to six years. And uh, I always found uh, charismatic Christians a little bit funny. And I felt like whenever they were praying... They weren't trying to share their mind with God as much as they were trying to read God's mind and know God's will. And so it was always sort of this like game of we know God's will, we're going to pray according to it. And there's another edge to it, which was kind of like it was centered around intimacy with God. And the way I felt it was it was a little too romantic for me. It was kind of like singing, you know, uh, Jesus song love songs like he's your boyfriend or something and um, i think mark driscoll says you know going to prom with jesus or something like that but it had that kind of romantic edge to it and it was like i'm so close with you and i know you i love you i know your will i'm going to pray according to it and uh, i want you to hold me and hug me and kiss me and it just was that whole scene And I think there's a place for some of that. But that was my second memory, and I sort of had an allergic reaction to that as well. And then there's my third uh, experience of prayer, which I actually like a lot, and I still practice. And I learned from the Christian mystics and the contemplative side of Christianity this idea of centering prayer. And if I can describe it in one phrase, I would say it's a more passive approach to prayer. It's not so much, you know, what you bring to the game— but it's sort of you come and you receive. And my job is to sort of be available and to be open. And it's uh, uh, reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is teaching about prayer. And he says, when you pray, go to a secret place and shut your door. And the idea is that you hold on to your door and you keep it shut until all of the distractions are gone. Until you're not thinking about that conversation you had. Until you don't want to clip your toenails. And until you don't want to clean the bathroom or pay the bills or something. All of those, you know, urgent thoughts are gone. And then Jesus comes. And then you open and you dine with him and he with you. It's that idea of prayer. And of the three, I probably have appreciated the third uh, area of prayer the most. Now, uh, what about you? For you, what is prayer? What experiences come to mind? Memories? Or uh, how would you rate, if you're in this camp, how would you rate your prayer life? Or your prayer performance? How are you doing with regard to prayer? Do you feel like you're doing great? Do you feel guilty? Like, oh, I should pray more. Does anybody think like, oh, I'm praying just enough? that ever happen? I think prayer is kind of a, a loaded topic if we think about it. And I think a lot of people are unclear about when to pray, how to pray, what is prayer, does God work with prayer, how does prayer, the whole deal, how does that all work? What's it about? Sometimes when there's enough desperation, we find ourselves praying. You know, and when times are good, we kind of don't pray as much. 
right? It's more kind of need-driven. I have, an hypo- I have a thesis or a hypothesis that I want to present to you today as my message. And the hypothesis is this. According to this passage, all of life, everything that we call living, every heartbeat that your heart has ever beat, every thought you've ever had, every act, every hope, every decision, every relationship, every planning, every goal setting, every moment you've ever lived, all you've ever done falls under the category of what here, I think, Romans calls prayer. That your whole life, whether you want to, whether you're conscious of it or not, is prayer. That you and everyone else, and even inanimate objects, the chair you are sitting in, the rocks, as the scriptures say, we are always praying all the time. That's what we do. As creation, as part of this created world, we pray without ceasing. Christians, Buddhists, atheists, Muslims, agnostics, smart people, less smart people, well-read people, religious people, disciplined people, lazy people, young people, old people, Sleeping people, awake people. (laughs) I'm trying to hit everything. Everything, all the time, we're praying without ceasing. That's my thesis. Okay? And within that, I want to show you what prayer is, why we pray, and why it matters that we pray to God, the Father, in Jesus' name. Okay? First, what is prayer? First, I think prayer is a kind of homesickness. Do you like home? I love home. I love being home. Because when I'm home, you know, I forget who said this, but home is a place that remembers you. You don't have to adjust the furniture because it's pre-adjusted for you. The towel that feels just like the thing that you like, that you're used to. You know, when, you hit, when your head hits the pillow, oh my goodness, it's my pillow. The height is perfect. And the smell, hmm, I recognize it. Right? The fridge, oh, the food, I remember this food. It just knows you, the temperature, the way it feels, the lighting in the room. A home is a place that knows you, and remembers you, and loves you, and cares for you, and is perfectly customized for you. And we are not there. And that's why life is so uncomfortable. We are so conscious, and self-conscious, and striving, and seeking, and we want more, and better, and deeper, and next, and new. Why? Well, verse 16 says, because we're homeless. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We are children of God. We have a Father. We came from somebody's heart. And that's God the Father. There is a God, 
And he made this whole world. And we are not in the world that he intended for us. And so when we are first born, we are born through pain and agony in strife. Genesis says. And then we are born crying, gasping for air. And from that moment, we are cold, we are hot, we are uncomfortable. We are born into this materialistic, temporal universe. And we start clawing our way home. We want to be home. This is the human experience in a nutshell. A journey back towards home. You're hungry. It's too humid. Your heart is broken. You're bored. Why do you feel all of these things as if you're not supposed to? Unless you're not supposed to. Why isn't this world exactly the way it is just default for you? Why is there a consciousness about, why is there this tension? Why? Because we are God's children and we are not in the home that he has ultimately, permanently created us for. You know, when I get to heaven, even though I've never been there, I know that in an instant, I will recognize it. It'll be, whoa, oh, wow, this chair, this food, this view, this is what I was meant for. Oh my gosh, I am home, home. It's going to feel so great. Have you ever traveled? You know the word travel comes from the same word as the word travail. Traveling is so hard. Even if you fly first class, even if you have a lounge that you're sitting in, even if you get to expense all your incidentals, even if there's no flight delays, even if a limo is waiting to pick you up at the airport, all of that is second class. Is coach class compared to your home. My home is way more comfortable than the most comfortable first class seat I've ever sat in. Oh my gosh, this is so nice. I get to use a metal fork. But it's tiny and it's not the way I like it. Heaven is going to resonate. It's going to ring true and it's going to be just right. It's going to remember me like I've never been remembered before. Do you feel that? That you are a child of God made for heaven and that this isn't quite it? Do you feel the tension and the discomfort and the self-consciousness that you live with that you just call life? Second, prayer is primarily and most fundamentally What here Romans calls groans or groanings. Verse 23, there's three times in which this word appears, but I just picked one of them. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly. You know, there's this thing that we call prayer that we... uh, you know, historically, maybe traditionally, conventionally understand to be prayer. And it's kind of a religious activity. And it's this thing that you do 
where maybe you clap your hands together, you close your eyes, and then you try to articulate to God some things that might cause him to you know, bend his ear towards you and hopefully get you what you want. That's kind of what prayer is. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I need a little more. Right? That's what it, We don't want to come off entitled, so we thank him first, and then we ask for more. Now, behind these words, though, there is before the thoughts, before the words are formed on our mouth, Scripture says God already knows our thoughts. So before the words, there is the thought. Now, what's before the thought? And you keep tracing that back, whatever, as far back as you can take it, and at the very, very center, the primal thing that's there, behind the thing that we conventionally understand to be prayer, is what Paul here calls a groan. That we groan because we are homeless, because we are uncomfortable, because we are in tension. And the thing that happens, creation was made for something, but it's not in that thing that it was made for. And the first thing that happens is a groan happens. Every act you've ever acted out, every motion physical, every decision you've made, behind all of that, if you trace it all the way back, at the center of it, there's this thing that's called a groan. Behind every decision you've made, you chase the thinking back while you're making the decision. And you go all the way back at the, at, at the first. The primal thing is a groan. Every sin you've ever committed. You know what's a good working definition of sin? An illegitimate way to meet a legitimate need. You got that? And so you trace every sin that you've ever committed back. Well, why did you do that? Or why did you not do that? Well, because, and then why did you do that or didn't do that? And you keep asking the why question, and you go all the way back, chase the rabbit down the hole, and you end up at its den. And you know what's there? A groan. Every thought you've had, every fear, every relationship, every fantasy you've had, every hope, every thinking, every yearning, every desire. At the heart of all of that is this thing that Paul calls a groan. You can ask a rock, rock, what's up? And at the center of the existence of that rock is a groan. You ask a tree, you ask an animal, you ask your chair. At the center of it, at at the center of every molecule, according to this passage, there is a groan. All of creation, everything outside of God is groaning. Prayer is a groan. And we can't help but to groan. Prayer is also waiting Waiting sucks. Like, I hate waiting. I'm not a good waiter. For the anxious longing, verse 19 says, of the creation waits eagerly. As soon as I get to a hotel, I want to leave. As soon as I board a plane, even though I wanted to board the plane so badly, I wanted to be the first to board, in fact. But as soon as we touch down, I can't wait to stand up. I just want to get out of there as soon as I can. At the airport, 
I can have hours and hours of waiting time. And I can't watch the movie that I brought with me to watch. Because when I'm waiting, I'm in this in-between space. And I don't know how to engage my present. The present. When I'm at a restaurant waiting for the bill after I've eaten the meal. So hard to wait. Are you a good waiter? Do you like waiting? How about this? Engagement. I hate I hated being engaged. Like we weren't dating, but we were like fully committed so the freedom was gone. But then we weren't married, so the freedom was gone. It was just this waiting period. Good thing my engagement was only two and a half months long. You know what I also hated? My senior year. Any senior year. Just waiting. Just killing time. I think they call that senioritis, right? I'm not a good waiter. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. Do you feel that you, your existence, and existential truth about you as a human being who is alive and conscious is that you are in waiting mode? Do you feel this anxiety in you? Even if you're not at the airport, even if you're not in an engagement or it's not your senior year, Do you feel the waiting nature of your existence? That you're not quite in the past, you're not quite in the future, but you're not quite in the present either? You're kind of straddling. Well, what are you straddling? Why are you, and the word here is anxious. And the word here is longing. And the word here is eagerly. That there's a kind of anticipation and a hoping and just uh, in-between state. And that state is what we call living. It's what we call life. Why are we like that? Why aren't we just at rest? Why? Why are we always looking for more? Why is whatever is here not perfect and good enough because prayer is waiting. We're in a waiting state. This is what it means to be alive. Prayer is also hope. I really, really am coming to appreciate this word hope. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You know why I like this word hope? It means I have a chance. I have a shot at something. It means that there's a possibility. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. What's possible? I don't care. I just like the idea of possibility. There's like something out there beyond. There's there's things outside of this room. This room isn't it. We haven't arrived. We're still in process. It's still a journey. This isn't a destination. Are we there yet? No. Oh, great. So we're still going to get there. Wherever we get to, it's going to be better than this, right? Yep, it's going to be better. Are we going to get there? Yep, we're going to get there. Do we have enough gas? Oh, great. We need gas. That gives me hope. Is the car good? Great. That gives me hope. Are we still going to go? Yes, we're going to go. Okay, great. That gives me hope. Hope. If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Things don't stand in my way because I have hope. I'm still going. I'm still moving. A picture that comes to me is the word windows. I like windows. I remember I was one of those kids that can never sit still and do my homework. 
You know why? Because I can hear the other kids outside playing. You know, like when I was growing up, we didn't set up play dates and it wasn't this high maintenance thing for to be a kid. Like we just played all day. But I couldn't play until my homework was done. But the window, it gave me a glimpse into what was waiting for me. And I can persevere through my homework because I can see through the window the joy that was set before me so I can despise the shame of the homework. Right? Hope. I love this word. But that's what prayer is. Prayer is hoping. Prayer is some, seeing something beyond the room where you're doing homework. Outside where life is. Prayer, as I've been alluding to and saying, is also default. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans, there's that word again, and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Everything, everything is groaning. The whole creation, Romans says, the whole creation, that means rocks too, is praying all the time. It's groaning all the time. It cannot help but to groan. We are in this in-between waiting, hoping, persevering state. We can't quite be there or here or there anywhere because we're waiting. We're praying. Everything we do, every breath we take, every fiber, every cell, every molecule, every atom, it's all groaning. And this is what we call Prayer and, and what we understand to be conventional prayer, that itself is part of a larger thing we call groaning, that we call prayer. Now, if that's what prayer is, why do we pray? What does prayer do? What's the point of it? Why the groaning? <clears throat> First, there's this reality of our world called suffering. Because there is suffering, this passage says, we pray. The reason we groan is because we are suffering. Verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. And we know this, that we are enslaved to what Paul here calls Corruption, that things are decaying, things are breaking down, that we're not getting better, that our bodies are getting worse and our minds decay and our relationships, unless there's energy input, it starts decaying. Everything is high maintenance because we are enslaved to this thing called corruption. Here's a statement I want to make about suffering. Okay, that's very, very much here in this passage that we'll get to see in a little bit. But the statement is this. Okay, you got to hear this, and you, I really want you to agree with this. Suffering is not God's will. I think Christians have really messed up the theology of suffering. Now, theologians will tell you that there's different levels of God's will, but at the most basic level. It is never, ever, 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 ever God's will for anyone to suffer. 
evil, decay, sickness, disaster. None of these things are ever, ever, ever God's will. Now, suffering is real, and suffering is the context of prayer, but it is not the purpose of prayer. Do not thank God for suffering. We thank God that He's a powerful God, that He's a loving God, that He's wise, and He's able to use suffering in our life. But we pray against suffering. I think one of the best ways to win non-Christians over, to at least pique their interest to Jesus, is uh, when Christians do suffering well, when churches articulate their relationship to suffering well. Show somebody how you suffer. Really know how to weep and be angry at suffering and yet be poised and have faith and hope in God. Simultaneously. Second, why, second reason why we pray is that God is good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Here is God's will. The good. God's will is always good. He is always working towards the good. Now, two statements about this. Things don't just work towards the good by themselves. You know, we think all the time, oh, it just, it'll work out. No, it won't. We are under bondage. We are enslaved to corruption. Things actually always, always get worse. Things don't just work out. There is a person behind the good that we experience in life. Romans 8, 28. God causes. What if there is a causer? What if left to our own devices and our own laws of physics and tendencies in life, what would happen? Well, good doesn't happen. So Romans 1 starts with the primary objective of creation is to say thank you. And when we don't know how to say thank you, that starts the whole spiral downwards. That's how Romans begins. Because we don't say thank you. All the good that you and I have ever experienced in life is because God is good and he's powerful and he loves the whole world. And he's working towards the good. Got that? Second statement we have to say about this is that not all things are good. Christians do. Don't thank God for all things. We thank God for Him and His character and His commitment. We don't thank God for cancer. We don't say, oh God, thank you for cancer because while I was going through chemo, I realized so many things about life and myself and my family got closer together and I, the community just bonded and I just feel like I belong so much more in this community. Am I healthier than ever? Nope. Nope. Wrong prayer. You don't thank God for cancer. Say, God, thank you that you used cancer and you were able to work all these good things out of it. Thank you that you are a redemptive God. 
But I pray, God, that you will eliminate cancer from my body and from this whole world forever. Wipe it away. Destroy cancer. Because cancer is evil. It's destructive. You have to be able to weep when Lazarus dies. There is a lot of evil in this world. And God is not the author of it. And he does not will it. He is working with it. There is permission on God's part because he's God. The Bible does say when times are good, rejoice. When times are bad, consider God has given one as well as the other. But on a basic level, God is purely good. And there is no suffering and evil and, de- and decay that is willed by God. Man, I wish I can read your minds right now. What's going on? Are you fighting me on this? Are you in agreement? Do you see this? Yes? I want to leave this point, but I'm not feeling released. (laughs) Folks, God is good and his will is good and he and his will and his goodness, that's the hope of our prayers. But not all things are good. Next, why do we pray? Because we're in process. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, disclaimer here, uh, as a man, I've learned to not use this childbirth metaphor and leave that to the uh, females in the room. And so I'm not trying to use it, but Paul's just trying to get me in trouble here. Uh, So um, I speak of it, but I speak of it with great respect and just pleading ignorance on my part, okay? So the whole idea here is that God has undertaken this process that's called redemption. And it's a maturing process. And we are developing as a human being. All of creation is subjected to decay. But simultaneously, they were subjected in hope. Meaning that while it's subjected and things are getting going from bad to worse, right? That's what decay is. It's going from bad to worse. Because God is good and because God is powerful, that is, he's redemptive, he's able to take this trajectory and still move it upwards. And so there's this circle of, cycle of life where things are going from bad to worse, but God intervenes, and because he is loving and because he is good, he's able to progress it forward, mature it, develop it, grow it, And that's what scriptures call redemption. Working good things out of all things, including bad things. So that is what God is doing. But that's like being pregnant. Meaning, it's a whole set process. And when it's not time, it's not time. Until it is time. And when it's time, it's time. When Emmy was... uh, uh, in utero, um, that's my firstborn, I was a crazy first-time dad. I was like paranoid, very diligent, active. We went to the doctor the day she was born. In the morning, doctor said, oh, man, you got a long ways to go. Go back home. 
And so on our way home, we borrowed a movie, a DVD to watch. And as we came home, Susie said, ah, Peter, I have a stomach ache. And I thought nothing of it. And then lo and behold, I realized she was going into labor. But I was prepared. I had my, you know, bag for Susie and I had another bag for the baby. And I was, you know, I grabbed my car keys and I was just very appropriately yelling at Susie. And... And then I, I just went crazy, and I fell down the stairs, like a whole flight of long Boston stairs, tumbled like head over toe, and I landed on my backpacks, on my back, facing up towards Susie to the top of the stairs. And I said to her, I don't think I could drive you to the hospital. <laughs> and so I called my friend James, and I said, James, where are you? We need you. We need to get to the hospital. He's like, Peter, I'll be there. I'm 10 minutes. That's too late. We got to go now. And uh, I just was useless is my point of the story. And uh, the other point is when it's time, it's time. But until it's time, it's not time. And so right now we live in tension and in self-consciousness. But it's happening. There is a maturing. There's a building. There's a growing that's happening in you, your mind. We as a, as a species, we're developing. Right? Paul calls this, your, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That you may be able to grasp the love of God, which is wide and deep and tall and broad. Right? In the fullness of time, God sent his son. But until it was time, God didn't send his son. But then when it was time, God said, okay, let's go. Here's uh, um, two cheesy statements. You and I, right now, as we are in process, we are, okay, cheesy statement number one, pregnant with the future. Kind of cheesy. Here's a really cheesy one. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. That we are redemptive agents in God's development of this world. That your mind growing, you learning more about God, you becoming a better human being, all of that is pushing us forward. The way you impact society, the way you express your work ethic and diligence in helping to redeem this world, it all matters. It's all helping to grow the baby. It's all helping to pull the time closer. And one day it's going to be time. But it's contingent on us. You matter. I matter. And so, lastly, we have you. You are the reason we pray. Your development. You, me, I, we are the bottlenecks right now. Our maturing, our diligence, our work and life matters because the creation was subjected to futility until it is released in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I spent hours thinking about this word glory this week. I would love to one day preach a sermon on just the word glory. It's just amazing to think about. It blows my mind. 
And I love the way it really brought in many, many different thoughts together. But that's for another day. But there is this thing called glory, and it's incomparable to this thing we experience called suffering. And we're headed there. And we are a part of that, what Jesus calls kingdom building process. Now, why does it matter that we pray to God in Jesus' name? You know, we define prayer. This is what prayer is. And this is why we pray. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Why do we pray to God the Father in Jesus' name? Verse 26 says, when we are just praying, which is what we do by default, we are quite inefficient and ineffective as redemptive agents. Left to our own devices, we redeem nothing. We are enslaved to corruption and decay. We make things worse. How do you like them apples? That our groaning, Paul says, it's just like people groping in the darkness. We're not hitting the mark at all. We're just knocking stuff over and slapping each other silly. We don't know how to pray as we should. We have this weakness, this fallibility, this fallenness. And on top of that, Paul says here, that we are dealing with some really, really, really deep stuff. There is no way we can understand it. We're all just Homer Simpsons working in a nuclear power plant. We don't know what we're doing. These groanings that we have automatically by default, it's not getting the job done, folks. And here Paul is saying, you need the Holy Spirit in you because the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God the Father. That is, He knows God's will and He will help us to groan and work and live and be according to the will of God and His purposes towards a perfect world we can't do that on our own do you have the wisdom to know how to redeem this world even your life do you know how to raise your kids by yourself do you have it in you do you have the love do you have the wherewithal do you have all of the character and the resources that you need to manage even just your own life well and the answer is no how will you help the whole world you can't You are enslaved to decay and corruption. And so you need the Holy Spirit. Would you like to have a pastor who's got it all figured out, but doesn't have the Holy Spirit in him? Would you like to be victim to my own evil plans and devices? Would that be fun? No. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. I'm scared of myself. I have seen the mirror. It is not pretty. And so we need the Holy Spirit. 
You know, so many times in Scripture, prayer, when uh, the Bible talks about prayer, it actually talks about uh, using less words, the better. Um, Paul says, when you approach God, let your words be few. Because he already knows what you're thinking, and the things you have to say, it's not very good. Most of it is like adventures and missing the point. And Jesus, when he saw two people praying, he commended the sinner more, primarily because he wasn't speaking his words, but he was just beating his chest, while the other religious guy was so articulate. And Jesus was like, yeah, that guy over there that's not speaking, but is just beating his chest, pray like him. We don't know how to pray as we ought to. Our rituals, our words, our thinking, our scheming, surprise, it's not getting the job done. Redemption does not draw nigh by our efforts alone. We need the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we get the Holy Spirit? Verse 27, he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The whole plan is this. Jesus forgives us of all of our sins. Right? By dying on the cross. And this Holy Spirit enters Jesus' dead body and raises him from the dead. That same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, helping us to pray, interceding for us towards God's will and purposes, which results in what's called here redemption. All of that praying that we do by default 24-7, it mounts to nothing if it's not towards God the Father according to His purposes. The only way to live and pray effectively is through the Holy Spirit that is in Jesus' name. And whenever we pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is, God, here's what I'm thinking. But who cares what I'm thinking if it's not aligned to your will, according to the Holy Spirit, which knows your mind. And the way we express that is in Jesus' name. And then we say amen, which means so be it. Let it be. Let it be according to your will. So your life, as hard as you try, will not result in redemption of your life or this world unless you are living that life in Jesus name you have to be godward in your heart and your intentions as you are living live in awareness simultaneously of your fallenness but facing God saying God you are my hope you are the one I wait for I look to you as a maiden looks to her lover I look to you and so I pray with my whole life Every sin I commit, there in this, at the middle of that sin, somewhere is some legitimate need I need you to meet. And so I pray through my sins. When I sit down and I have no words, I pray in images. When I'm with my friend and I'm having a great conversation, and I enjoy that and I'm thankful for that conversation, I give praise to you because you are able to cultivate love between two sinners. This is a God-word life. Jesus alone, according to Scripture, has travailed and prayed His way from suffering to glory, which is our path. We can't get from suffering to glory. We go from suffering to worse suffering. 
But Jesus made it from suffering to glory. And so we follow behind him in his name. I don't want to just groan and hope, but I want to groan and hope towards God. Now, in conclusion, let me make these four statements. Prayer is not the separate thing, this religious activity that we do sometimes, but it is your whole life. Every part of your life expresses deep yearning, longing, and desire for home. Prayer is not a religious thing, but creation's response to homesickness, to homelessness. Prayer is yearnings, hopes, desires, images, words, and actions that are lived and breathed towards God. And lastly, God is calling all of us today, all of us, whether you believe in him or not, all of us, towards prayer according to his purposes, life according to his purposes. Would you pray with me? Father, I have three prayers today. The first prayer is that you would receive and redeem our decaying bodies. Our bodies are falling apart. And we uh, are constantly reminded of the decay that we are bound to as we live in these mortal bodies. You promise in your word that our bodies will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. That we will be given bodies that are incorruptible. So we long for that day and we entrust our bodies into your good hands. Second, Holy Spirit, we ask you to translate our groans and our groping in the dark into effective prayers to God according to his will. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in our lives and in our hearts. Thank you for the redemptive work that you are doing. Today we say to you that we want to live life in Jesus' name. And last, Jesus, we thank you for giving us your name by which we can pray. We thank you for your name by which we can live. And we thank you for your name by which we are saved. In Jesus' name, amen.